Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Well, there we go. We we are on our way. Man, man, I just it's it's just awesome. This the layers of stuff that goes on and the relational connections that go on in these epic narratives that we have are so much fun because you could actually spend so much more time on them. And you say, Bob, no, don't spend any more time. I listen to you every, you know, every week and they are so long already. I know. I try not to make them too long uh, this year compared to last year, right? I mean, if you listen to David, you know that there were times I often went more than an hour. And here I'm really trying to trying to keep it down to 40 to 50 minutes, but generally around 40 minutes, plus my, uh, some afterthoughts, some Bob thoughts after each one. Just because, just because we got plenty of time to go along. And you know what? I don't want to do, I, I, I want to lay out opportunities for you to interact with stories with curiosity that maybe spark an opportunity for you to do a little bit more research, to do a little bit of uh, digging without turning every story into the, into, in the Bible into a manipulative behavioral uh, modificational opportunity, which is what unfortunately, well, what a lot of pastors do, right? They take this, they find what they find what they're looking for. It's like, yes, now I can tell people how to behave. And I hope you don't feel that way when you listen to me. That is the Bob Switzer on the Epic Narrative. Thanks so much for coming today, everybody. Here we go. Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. That would be where he was headed. Now he continued on the journey. What does that mean? We it's time. It's time. It's one of those time verses. It's awesome. You know, he's he's alone, maybe. Maybe he's in a group periodically. As he's walking, he had an amazing encounter with the Lord. And it wasn't like the Lord was a brand new thought for him, right? I, it, was, it was part of his culture, part of his family. Part of the testimonies, the stories, the uh, the rescues, the survival, the the favor, all that stuff, uh, God got credit for. So there was there was, you know, it, it was not a <laughs> it wasn't a foreign thought to be interacting with with the Lord. And uh, so along the way, he's got time to interact with God. He's got time to interact with himself. He's thinking about his family. Uh, I'm sure he kind of wondered. Like if his brother had already calmed down, maybe he could go home again. I'm sure he's guessing, uh, you know, I'll you know, maybe I'll be gone for a month, maybe two. I mean, I've never met these people, but again, culturally, hospitality was huge. Like you had to show hospitality, especially to a relative. But because of the the harshness of the land, even strangers were given hospitality because it was just a it was the honorable thing to do. It didn't matter whether you liked them or. Or if they came from a clan that you didn't agree with, they needed shelter at night. They needed they needed uh, food, and you provided it. It was just a general uh, accepted practice. So he's going along to a place he's never been, but he knows there's people there. He's, I'm sure, starting to hope for the future. He has a great promise from the Lord that he just got in episode, the last episode. And, and he's thinking, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. I'm going to go in, get a wife. I'm going to come home. I'm also thinking that he's remembering the testimonies of his father's, you know, wife search. Remember Eleazar went, went, sat by a well, found the girl, got the girl, 
went home. Isaac fell in love with her first thing. Bada boom, bada bing. Day was over. So, well, not quite the day. I know it wasn't a day long, but it was it was a pretty quick turnaround. And I have a feeling he's very hopeful that that will happen for him. So in, in chapter uh, verse 2, chapter 29, verse 2, the, there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered at that well. And the stone over the mouth of the well was very large. When the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the mouth of the well and would water the sheep. And then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? And they were like, we're from Haran. He said, wow, awesome. <laughs> okay, that's not, anyways, that was my words. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's son, grandson? Yes, yes, we know him. Jacob said, well, is he well? In other words, is, is he alive? I, you know, does he exist? Uh, what's going on <laughs> with him? And they're like, yeah, he's doing great. Uh, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to the, to the pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered at the stone, uh, gathered, and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. So, so while he's still talking to them, Rachel comes up with the father's sheep, and she was the shepherd. Now, this stone, this stone thing was evidently very heavy, and and so you would gather the sheep and water them. But generally, you did that toward the end of the day, because during the day, you would take them out into the fields and you'd find them shade and they would eat and they would stay in the shade and stay cool. And then then you would bring them in. But because of the weight of the stone, they had to wait for everybody to get together and then they would all have to move the stone and then they would all water their sheep. And then they all had to stay until everybody was watered and then they all had to move the stone back. So it was a it was a cumbersome, uh, inefficient and not a great not a it was just logistically it wasn't a good deal for especially for sheep herders right and of course uh jacob knows this because they have lots of sheep back at their house or house back at their tents so he knows how to how to raise sheep he knows what's you know what's proper what's a good rhythm for their day so he calls him out on it i mean rachel's on her way he's he's he hears about that right he hears that nahor's doing great that um and and obviously he has a daughter, so he sees this well. He's in you know he's he's in the area of his relatives, which is why he asked about Nahor to begin with. He just kind of uh, you know it's not a GPS system; it's a relational system. So you kind of go to the general area of what you're looking for. You start asking questions, and people kind of point you in the direction, or they tell you we've never heard of him. You know, keep walking, and that happened. That happened a lot. I often think of that when I read like history, and and uh, you know they got the Revolutionary War or or the Civil War or whatever, and people are like, so we all went down to this whatever this area of the country, and I think how how did they find it? Like where? Well, we took the trail. What what trail? Like you you just got to know these things, and and if you didn't know, you asked, and people would send you down these roads. Like you, it, it's it's fascinating to me how people traveled in these days, without without GPS, without a map, without a phone. Well, they might have had maps. I shouldn't say they didn't have maps. Of course, they could have had maps. Anyways, so he goes to the well. 
now wells represent a lot of things. They, you know, obviously places of life. If you see a well, you can hang out there. You're going to get water. You're probably going to find people. You're probably going to get, probably going to get some food. So you, so you, not only are you going to get some basic information from the shepherds, because you know eventually the shepherds are going to show up, but you're going to get some new, some uh, nourishment. You're going to get some hospitality. You're going to figure out what's going on. So you go to a well. There he was. He went to where he needed to go. He's probably uh, a little excited because, you know, he knows the testimony of his, of his father. He knows that his father, well, his father's servant, met uh, the wife at a well, so it's a it's a it's a good rhythm. It's it's a good place to go. I'm sure he's very hopeful, very excited. So Rachel shows up. So she's a shepherd. And, uh, so I'm guessing this is this is where you start to I don't know. For me, it gets a it gets a kind of crazy. Okay, so she's probably twelve or thirteen. She wouldn't have been a shepherd unless she was considered a woman, and she wouldn't be a woman unless she unless she had gone through puberty. So. To be a shepherd, she had to probably be about 12 years old. Now, genetically speaking, puberty tended to hit earlier in those days because of the culture of the and expectations of the world. People tended to mature quicker, quick, more quickly, more quickly. It, it's really interesting, but it was the Western culture that developed the whole idea of a teenager where you just kind of learned and experience and get educated before you actually do anything. I mean, I know a lot of teenagers do a lot of things and they work hard and stuff, and I'm not belittling that, but the concept of being a teenager was something that kind of got invented much later in life. Teenagers were considered hard work, like they were just workers. It's why so many families would have so many children is because their concept was, well, in, in 10 or 11 years, they're they're working the farm, so let's have a bunch. Then we don't have to hire anybody. We get all this free labor. So Jacob goes to the well. They tell him Rachel's on the way. So while he's talking to them, Rachel came up with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. Verse 10, when Jacob saw Rachel's daughter, Rachel uh, was uh, and, and her uncle, oh, sorry, when Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle, Bob, read the words. They're right there in front of you. And Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now, remember, this is like one of those logistical things. Remember what we just read. All the shepherds had to wait for all the shepherds before they could move the stone so that they could water their sheep. This is, this is a daily routine. Jacob sees Rachel. He sees the sheep. He sees that she needs to water the sheep. And he goes over and moves the stone. It's really, it's this is kind of a either one of those super adrenaline rushes or it's a miracle. She's alone. She has a small flock. She's a hard worker. He's he steps right in. He's clearly very excited to see her, right? And and not only that, he waters the sheep. Like, it's not even like he moves the stone and then steps back and watches her do her work. He takes care of her. Now, she's like 12 years old. And I know this is where it gets weird for me. He's, he's like 77. Now, what? Now, I know, I know they lived a lot longer. 
77 is literally mid midlife, maybe. Maybe not even mid midlife yet. He's not, you know, he he obviously hasn't been married before. But still, this is this is this is hard for my western mind to wrap around. So he sees her, he waters her, he kisses her, which like again, he's just crying. He's kissing her probably on both cheeks and hugging her. And he's like, I, he tells Rachel that he is a relative of her father and a son of Rebecca. So she ran to tell her father. So whatever is exchanged here, he basically is saying, I came here looking for relatives. I came here looking for a wife and there you are. This is amazing. So he, she runs and tells her dad, right? And as soon as Laban hears the news, Jacob, son of Isaac, son of son of his, his sister, he runs to meet him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He brings him into his home. And there Jacob told him all the things that he had that he had gone through, all the stories of, of home, all the the stories of his brother, the, of how his mom was doing. Like, this is a long night. And Laban says to him, you are my own flesh and blood, after Jacob had stayed with him a whole month. So when you when when we read this verse 13, where it says he embraced him and kissed him and brought him in his home, and there Jacob told him all things, that's how long of a day it was. It was a month-long day. Now, this is this is amazing, right? Jacob is Jacob is excited because this is very much, you know, in his mind, very similar to his mother's story. But he's he's not he doesn't come with resources. I think Laban hurried out because Laban's thinking, holy cow, he's probably got 20 camels to bring in. He's probably got so much stuff piled on those things. I need to bring them all back. I need to make sure everybody knows that I am here for him, that that this whole family connection is something I don't want anyone else interrupting. I bet you there's people already already trying to talk him out of some of the wealth he brought. And I have a feeling when, when Laban shows up, he expects great wealth, right? But he's... Um, disappointed he's looking at it going wait it's i kind of picture him hugging hugging jacob kissing jacob saying you are my you know you're my my brother my son whatever those general family terms hugging on him and he's kind of looking over his shoulder and he's like well where's your um where's your supplies uh it's just me i just i just walked here alone oh all right, well, why don't you come stay with me? So they're hanging out for a month. And Laban can't quite figure out what's going on. Because, man, he talks about all the wealth. He talks about all the things that they've done, all the all the servants they have and the army they, well, army standing security they have and the shepherds that they have and the market that they work in and the, the merchants they have interactions with, all these connections that, for Laban is all about money. I mean, I think he's probably still upset that that his dad didn't hang on to uh, Rebecca longer and force Isaac to come out to the family compound with more wealth, you know, with 10 more camels. So he's wondering if, you know, is this guy telling the truth or is he not? 
And and so Laban says to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you uh, work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages will be. So evidently within that month, Jacob started to just do some general labor and work for Laban. He has, he has a, a much higher grade of knowledge and experience within the business world and within the, the raising of, of herds that he, he just naturally steps into a role of management and supervising. And after a month, Laban's looking around going, well, listen, uh, you know, you want to get paid for this? And Laban had two daughters. The name older one was Leah. The name of the younger one was Rachel. And Leah had weak eyes and Rachel was lovely and beautiful. And Jacob was in love with Rachel. And he said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban says, well, it's better for me to give her to you than some other man. So stay here. And then the next verse, right? Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because he loved her. Now that's a beautiful verse, right? Love is a very powerful, amazing, crazy thing, right? That you can work seven years and it just seems like nothing. He's 77 years old when he starts this whole thing. She's 12. So it's or whatever. She's going to be like 20 when they get married. So all this makes sense. And he fought like every day he sees her. She's she's during this seven years as the promise is made, like she has she gets into like training. People know, OK, you're she's promised to Jacob. Jacob is uh, getting prominence within the family. He's clearly making good, good decisions. The the sheep are multiplying. The goats are multiplying. There's what we would call favor or blessing on his and on, on all of his decisions. Laban's getting wealthier, but Laban is a surly dude. He's he's not ever really happy with anything. He's making sure people know that that well things could be better. And Jacob's not that great of a guy, but I think in a lot of ways Laban's disappointed because I can't I honestly can't imagine that that uh, Jacob didn't occasionally or at least initially reach back out to the family to see if he could get some some compensation get uh what a, what a, not a what do I want to say when you a dowry you know did he send a message back to his mom hey I've I've made arrangements to marry uh one of Laban's daughters but it'd be really great if I could get a dowry or did he decide <clears throat> based on the interaction that he had with God that he's not going to access the family wealth and he's going to work for or or do, you know, the uh, the culturally acceptable thing and not just pay for a wife, but wait for her. Now, a lot, you know, this 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 option, these options, you could have both. Like maybe he reached out to his family and Esau is what? He's running the family. All the wealth is in Esau's hands at this point. Jacob doesn't have any say in what's going on. Isaac's Isaac's overseeing things. I mean, I know I can't see things, but he's seeing, you know, he's in he's helping Esau. And I have a feeling that uh Rebecca's also being helpful. Everything's running fine, but but somebody has to has to make a decision. Do we send money to uh, to Jacob, and and the decision was no, maybe, maybe. I don't know. There's no record, but I just, in my head, it's hard for me to imagine that a businessman like Jacob didn't reach back out to his family. So in that, 
he's there. He, in a month, he's already starting to make a difference. <clears throat> he doesn't. Uh, Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave, so he's like, "Well, what you know? What do you want? You want to work for me? Let me pay you." Jacob's like, "Well, you take care of me, great, but I'll tell you what. I really need a wife. I want a wife, and your daughter Rachel, the younger one, she's very beautiful." In the Bible makes note of that like in essence you know god agrees with her with him she's uh she is beautiful now when it says that leah had weak eyes people aren't sure what that means and it can go it can go lots of ways it can mean that she doesn't see well or it could mean that that she had what was considered um uh what do they call them? like doe eyes her eyes were were um doe eyes they just they just were considered not as as um wow uh, shoot attractive okay so if they're not if, she, if her eyes weren't her best feature or this is the other crazy thing that language can also mean that her eyes were her only best feature that her eyes were dominate and when you looked at her you're captivated by her eyes the rest of her like if you took if you well, not that they saw them in anything but that would be considered immodest. But if you looked at her, you didn't look at her and think, well, she's a she's a really good-looking woman. You would, you would walk away going, man, did you see her eyes? They were stunning. Her eyes were at least the part that everybody talked about, whether they were not considered attractive or considered her only attractive point. Then you have Rachel who was attractive all the way through and everybody knew it. And now she's promised to her, uh, you know, to Jacob who is 77 years old and working for Laban. Uh, so Jacob chooses work over going back to the family, right? Now I have a feeling that the, the way that, the way that this is phrased again, when, he, when, uh, when Laban responds, uh, I'll work, you know, seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. He's like, it's better for me to give her to you than some other man. So, you know, stay here with me. It's a very condes condescending uh, phrase. And basically he's saying, well, all right, fine. I mean, you're a relative and you keep telling me you have money, but I don't see any. So fine. You know, if nothing else, at least she stays in the family. And, uh, and you know, I'll have access to her. He also may be thinking... This man is wealthy, and I might as well give him one of my daughters because at least then I'll I'll have some some uh, bloodline connection to this wealth. Laban, as we know, as as we continue, you know, this story. If you if you've spent any time in this in this story on your own, you know that Laban is a very greedy, uh, selfish, deceitful man. And a lot of people compare him to Jacob because Jacob, you know, obviously deceived uh, his brother out of the uh, blessing. And he was part of that plan. And he also begged and tricked, I guess you say, I don't know, he bargained for the birthright. And, and uh, as far as Esau is concerned, he stole it. So there's a, there's a correlation here where some people are like, you know, you reap what you sow. You you get what you know you you get what you are. Uh, some people think that God set this up, right? God's like, fine, you know, I need to teach my my new leader of the family 
how to uh, not be deceitful. So he needs to experience the kind of deceit and greed that that he ex- that he exuded on his brother uh, Esau, rather than trusting me. I don't know. Like all of those things can be can be drawn out of this if you want to. But for me, the general, you know, for in the epic narrative, I just see a, a guy who who is, uh, you know, doesn't want access to his to his family riches. He he is in love, as as weird as that sounds to be for me to be at 77. He's in love with a 12 or 13 year old girl, and he's willing to work seven years to wait until she's 20 to marry her. So he he goes. The seven years, I mean, seven years, she's training to be a wife. He's working the fields and lots of, there's lots of benefits. Laban's getting incredibly wealthy, more and more influential in the area. He's benefiting from Jacob's presence and and he's not an idiot. He does understand that, but he also wants to keep Jacob down. He wants to keep Jacob um, uh, from getting too uh, too much of a threat. That's what I would say. People that are people that are arrogant and greedy and selfish, right? Uh, dictatorial in the way that they manage people. They they look for threats all the time because they don't want to lose the power. They don't want to share the power. They don't want to lose the power. So it's very it's very hard for them when somebody comes in and is actually amazing at what they do. The 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 that mindset. That mindset says, well, you know, I need to keep them down. I need to make sure that they don't get access to this this part, right? They don't, they don't, they need to know that they're not in charge. And I think Laban constantly was reminding Jacob, you're not in charge. Just remember, you're not in charge. Just remember, these are my flocks. Just remember, I'm in charge. And Jacob's like, fine. Like he didn't for him, he wasn't there for the flocks. He wasn't there for taking over the family. He was there for Rachel. And it says the seven years seemed like a day. He got into a rhythm and he worked He worked the fields or walked the fields. He worked with people. Whatever he did every day, it was, it was easy for him because he knew he was getting Rachel. And, you know, over those years, he watched her probably get a little taller, her hair to get a little darker, her, you know, her eyes to become more beautiful. I, you know, I see that. I work with uh, students uh, as a coach, and you know, sometimes, this, uh, you know, we're off for the summer. Even good grief, sometimes, sometimes we're off for a month in between seasons, and they come back like a, you know, a guy will come back or a girl will come back, and you think, whoa, 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 like they're they've got to be like four inches taller. It's it's crazy. They look so different, or they, you know, their hair has grown, or so, sometimes for the girls, it's you know, it's they've curled it or they've dyed it. It's just. It's just fascinating to me how quickly people will adjust. And Rachel's going through that time. And she's as she's growing through her quote teenage years. And every time she, you know, he sees these changes in her, he he falls more in love with her. He sees that she is more and more beautiful. And he cannot wait for the day that they get married. So that day arrives. Jacob says, uh, after so Jacob served seven years. But they seemed like only a few days because he loved her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete. I want to make love to her. That's uh, that's subtle. <laughs> that was subtle. Yeah, I need to make a family. I need to start the family. 
my role, my promise, my destiny, my my you know what God has called me to do is to be the you know continue being the father of nations from Abraham. And I cannot let my brother steal that promise back just because he's the only one with wives and children. So he's very excited as the day was getting close. I totally get that. I do. I mean, I don't get the age difference because culturally that's really hard for me to wrap my head around, but I get the emotion that he's feeling. That makes perfect sense. Things are going along and, and you know, you're, you're within a year. You start to mark the calendar, at least I would. I was, I mean, good grief. We did it in school. I went to a boarding high school. Uh, I went to a boarding school for high school. Went boarding. I stayed there. And there were different ways that people would mark the days, to, you know, to the next vacation. The next day we all got to fly home. And then there were the seniors would often, not, not all of them, but many of them would have like calendars that they would mark or they would, you know, have, uh, I knew one guy that put up squares of toilet paper like he, he counted them all out and he put that that roll up on the wall and every day he would just take one square off until you know obviously when they graduated there was no squares left so I kind of pictured Jacob doing stuff like that or at least keeping note of that and he knew when that seven years was up and he walked right in he's like hey the contract's over I want my wife I gotta start a family I have to start a family now, I would imagine as, as times were getting closer, and again, it's my imagination, which is in the Western culture of flirtation, but I would picture that he is he he's can't help himself, but periodically he tells her, you know, as time is getting close in a couple, in two weeks, two weeks, Rachel, two weeks, Rachel, and she's excited. She's happy to be doing this. You know, she's probably at this point serving him the meals, a part of the, part of the, you know, the, the, the team that does that for the men of the house. And he makes comments. She sits by him. They talk. They they go for walks after work. Like there's there's stuff that's going on here that we don't necessarily see. We just which it's just kind of covered under that concept of he loved her. He's excited for her. He cannot wait to have a family with her. He's watched her training. She knows her character. He's like, you know, he's excited. Everything about this is go, go, go. So Laban brought together all the people of the place. In other words, the whole village. He puts together this whole feast. He knew that this was coming. He was probably trying to avoid it, but, you know, he's going to do the right thing. But at some level, he's also thinking, how do I keep Jacob around? Because if he leaves, everybody loves this guy. Even... You know, even though people tolerated uh, Laban, they they didn't like him. And Laban probably knew that deep down. Like, people don't really like me, but people really like Jacob. So he gives, you know, the wedding eve comes. He gives the younger uh, servant um, to deceive, right? Here, here uh, that's that's what it, he gave, he gave, uh, and Laban gave his servant Zip, Zipha to his daughter as her attendant. So she was going to take care of it. Now, Zipha was the younger uh, of, the, of the servants. That was part of the deception of Laban. Uh, then it says that uh, when the morning came, Leah was there. <laughs> Again, a shocking verse. So Jacob says to Laban, 
What is this you have done to me? I, I served for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Oh, it's our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish the bridal week with this daughter and I'll give you the younger one and then you can work another seven years. This plan had been in place for a while. And Leah had to be somewhat aware of what was going on. Now, whether she was a year younger, you know, nine months younger than Rachel or, you know, nine, or years younger than Rachel, we don't know. But let's just call it a year. So, so the younger uh, servant goes in and starts to uh, take care of the, um, the covering for Leah. Now, the reason why the younger servant was a deception is because the younger servant should have went with the younger daughter. So the fact that, Z that Zipha was given to uh, Leah helped deceive Jacob when the two of them walked off into the, into the tent to prepare, Rachel just kept on walking and Zipha prepared Leah. Now, it wasn't unusual in those days because I kept thinking, how in the world do you have relations on your wedding night and not know who it is? They would often, uh, even to this day, there's some, there, there are some cultures that still do this. You basically cover the bride in in a bag except for one spot which is left open for the one thing that needs to go there and <laughs> sometimes it's really fun to talk about this activity without using the words so i i hope you don't i hope you're not annoyed and then when the thing was done they would sleep there and in the morning you would uncover your bride. So when morning came, there was Leah. Now, I'm sure that Jacob is shocked, but it's not like he didn't know Leah or didn't have a relationship with her. I am sure that when he saw her, she was she knew that he was going to be upset. He was upset, but it's he also knew her. Like there, the the conundrum of emotions that he had to go through. And he goes right out to Laban. He probably woke her up. And Laban just, just lays it right out there, right? He lays it right out there. He knows what the plan is. He's like, well, you know, it's the rules. I'm, I'm obeying the rules. It's the culture that we live in. You, you didn't realize that? You didn't realize that? Oh, I'm sorry. Listen, uh, this is what I'm thinking. Finish up the week with Leah. I'll give you Rachel right away. You can you can have her right away, but you need to work another seven years. Now I don't know how drunk uh, you know um, uh, Jacob was that night, but I have a feeling he sobered up real quick in that morning, and he makes the agreement because he loves Rachel. Now there's a lot of guys who would be like you know, especially in that culture, he's seventy. Well, no, he's 80-something years old at this point. He has a, a, it's not like this Leah girl was, you know, a, a dog. And it's not like she wasn't young enough to produce children. So everything could have worked out fine. But he wanted Rachel. And there you go. I think this is another uh, power thing that Laban did. He wanted to, to once again control Jacob.
He wanted to make sure Jacob was in debt to him. Debt is an amazing, enslaving aspect to life. And we all know that if you if you you know live in our culture of today, debt is enslavement. And there are people that are so far in debt that everything they do in life is to basically try and keep from being overwhelmed by it. Much like a, a you know uh, the the um, stereotypical master just beating on you all the time. Debt will beat on you. It weighs on you. And, and Jacob uh, had, was under that with Laban. And Laban wants to keep that, that kind of power over him. He wants to make sure that Jacob continues to feel powerless to leave. And I don't know what Leah was going through through all of this. She knew what was going on, right? Somewhere in the night, Rachel came in and, and Leah was uh, was exchanged. Somewhere in there, Rachel walked off into the tent and walked right through the tent. Maybe she, did she say hi to Leah? Like, um, you know, have a, have a nice night. I mean, what do you say? What is Leah going through? I, I literally can't imagine all those things, all the emotions, because I'm not a woman. I don't, I don't understand all the ramifications of, shall we say, the wedding night when you've not been with anyone ever, and you know that the person that you're that's going to sleep with you is completely and utterly in love with someone else, and you've been exchanged for that someone else in order to trick this person and have your father you know, stay in power over him. And you're so tired of being with your father and living in that household that you're willing to do this. I don't know, willing is probably not the right word, but but the control that, that Laban had over his daughters, like she was, I shouldn't say willing, you were powerless to stop the plan. Like that's what I picture in Leah's world. She was powerless. This in essence was, I don't want to, uh, I don't, uh, Jacob didn't rape her because he had no idea who she was. He thought that she was a willing participant because he and Rachel, he thought it was Rachel, but the, but she had to experience it at some level. It was at least an emotional rape um, uh, th through her father. I, I Like the intensity of what went on in her mind had to be crazy. So Jacob, when he wakes up, uncovers her. She knew that was coming. He's shocked. He eventually jumps out of bed. She just probably, you know, covers up. She's now the wife. Her servant Zibia or Zipha knows about it. Zilpha knows about it. She just starts attending to her. I have a feeling she was in tears. Jacob goes out to see uh, Laban. Laban's like, well, you know, it's just the way things are. Work for me more. Now it says that uh, Jacob did it. He finished the week with Leah. Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bil Bilha to the daughter Rachel to be the attendant, the older, the older servant. Jacob made love with Rachel also, and he loved his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban seven more years. 
we just covered a whole lot of time. We covered a whole lot of time and a whole lot of, of life. <coughs> but I do find it interesting that he did love Leah. Not as much as he loved Rachel, but he loved Leah. Now, I don't know, I don't know, because I would never dream of having a second wife. I don't know if you can love one more than the other, but he did. And I don't know what that's like to live in a culture, a, a small culture like that, a home culture, where you know you're second rate. You know you're the, you're the second tier. So in that, you know, for seven more years, for seven more years, it's very clear to everyone that Jacob favors Rachel, but he clearly still loves and hangs out with Leah. Why do we know this? Because the Lord saw what was going on, and what does he do? His goodness is there. I know it sounds like he, he did something special for her, but he's like, my goodness is here. And in his goodness, he, he enabled her to, to just, Leah became like a, a baby-making machine. And then it, 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 in verse 31, it implies that somehow Rachel remained childish because of, you know, that was God's judgment. No, it's just she was barren. So Leah just starts popping out babies, Reuben. Um, and then, uh, you know, Reuben, right? That's it. That the name of that is because the Lord has seen my misery. That's that's just such an encouraging name to have, right? The Lord has seen my misery. As the father of Reuben, wouldn't you love to have a child named the Lord has seen my misery? Oh my gosh, horrible. Anyways, she conceived again, gave birth uh, to a son and named that one Simon. She conceived again, gave birth to a son uh, and now she's got three sons. She named him Levi. She conceived again. She gave birth to a son. This time I will praise the Lord. And she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. But in all of that, she always knew she was second rate. In those seven years, in all those, those uh, was it four, right? Four sons that she had. She knew she was a second-tier wife. She knew that Rachel was favored. She knew that even though clearly she's sleeping with her husband, Rachel is also sleeping with her husband. I don't know what kind of dynamic that puts between two sisters, one who's having children and nursing and, and raising children and has multiple servants now helping her raise children, who they're all sons, and they're all running around, and they're toddlers, and they're adorable. And and you know, I'm sure that Rachel, you can't help but love a little a little one, right? She's probably helping as well, holding the baby, giggling at the baby, helping raise them. There might be some conflict because, of course, Leah knows, hey, I'm the mom. I need to make that decision. You're not the mom just because you know Jacob loves you more doesn't mean you get to raise my children. I I'm sure that there's all that kind of tension going on in the seven years. And and Jacob goes out. I'm guessing every day to work the fields to work in and and you know in in Laban's favor. And Laban keeps getting wealthier and wealthier. And Laban's thinking, okay, we're having children. They've got their own little compound. Jacob works for me. He, he's getting some wealth. I'm getting some wealth. Laban's thinking this could all work to my advantage. 
Everybody stays here. Everything becomes, uh, you know, I become even wealthier. Because when you, when you start to have that many grandchildren, especially in that culture, and they're all sons, and you start to increase your wealth, people, people will start listening to you. You end up with more power. And to somebody who loves power and control, more is always better. And that's the position that Laban took. More is better. And we're going to continue this incredible whirlwind of, of life that Jacob's living. We've just covered 14 years of life in one chapter. That's crazy. But we've got more time to go and more insanity will ensue. Ladies and gentlemen, see you next week on The Epic Narrative. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Well, as you know, the fun never ends here in these amazing family stories in the Bible. I I appreciate the fact that that the drama of these of these renowned families, these these fathers of the faith, these these um, honestly amazing men and women also had very imperfect family lives. They struggled to raise their children. They struggled not to play favorites. They struggled in their, even in their walk with God. Sometimes they consulted him. Sometimes they didn't. Uh, but God was always faithful. He was always good. He was. He's always there. His goodness is just always there. It's, it's like a never-ending flood. And I, I know we've touched on it before. And I'll just, I'll say it again. <laughs> uh, his goodness, showing up after a bad decision or or a bad event or a or bad circumstances in no way indicates that he caused that decision to be made or he caused the that circumstance for you to be in it's just that he's good and he's always good and that's the amazing thing about god that's it I, it's 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 uh it's like god is good mm, all the time all the time, God is good, right? Anyways, I know you all know that, but I just I just love those thoughts about him. The goodness of God in my thoughts is just constant. Somebody asked me once, why, what, you know, why, why do you laugh all the time? And I, I said, well, the Holy Spirit's always talking to me, and he's always joyful, and he always has he always has a good attitude, right? He always, he always brings a perspective that encourages me. So it's easy to smile. And I do lose it. I do lose his voice sometimes, honestly, uh, you know, between you and me, if, uh, if I think I'm running late at like time, that's just, yeah, I, I lose the, I lose the joy, <laughs> but I'm working on it. I once had a guy challenge, uh, it was just a general challenge to an audience, but he goes, how expensive is the joy of the Lord? Like how quickly, do you disconnect from the atmosphere of heaven in a particular circumstance? And I thought, wow, that's a really good way of looking at it. Like how cheap do I sell out the joy of the Lord? How, how easily do I, do I just dismiss it and become angry and frustrated and all those negative emotions? Uh, because so many times those negative emotions are really caused by a lack of perspective. A lack of a lack of trust in the goodness and and faithfulness of God, 
And uh, that's what I that's what I lean on. I, I that's that's my journey. I constantly look for uh, uh, that that paradigm. When I've lost the joy, when I've lost perspective, I say, "All right, what am I missing? How am I? Why am I? You know, wh- where's my focus, and where should it be? It should be on the goodness of God, because He's always good." Oh, well, Bob, those are some interesting thoughts. Speaking of Bob. I noticed in this in this week's episode several times I flipped names. I think I flipped. Uh, I know I flipped Jacob and Isaac, uh, Jacob and Laban. I flipped them once. I flipped uh, uh, Leah and uh, Rachel a couple times. So if you were paying attention, you probably were like, "No, no, 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 Bob." And I thought, "Where's my engineer? Where was my engineer during those times?" And as you just just for what it's worth. Uh, once again, I, I make, you know, that's me talking to myself, right? That's why I named the engineer Bob. He's, he's not an actual voice in my head. He's not an actual person in the studio. It's just me talking to myself. And I created that uh, title for him, for myself, just to kind of entertain me while I'm doing this, because I do this alone often, well, the first couple seasons, almost completely in my basement. Um, I did finish up season two uh, recently, and that was while I was on the road here in the RV, but, um, and I'm almost done writing season three, so I'll start recording that soon. That's the book of Exodus. Oh, man, have we got stuff to do. Anyways, back to Bob. I just want you to know, I in no way, like, want it to be, um, mocking of people who actually do uh, have uh, what I want to use the right right term um, uh, mental illness uh, it's it, I know that's a serious thing but uh, I I don't want to be offensive in this caricature of my inner voice saying hey you, you messed something up here Bob because it is it is what happens internally I'm like wait a minute something isn't flowing right or or wow, you've been distracted for a while. Like, so I just, I just created that person just to have fun in, by myself in the studio, uh, as studio. That's funny in my basement or my RV. And uh, I just wanted you to know, if uh, you know somebody, and I, I personally know them. I know several uh, people and some, uh, a couple relatives of mine who struggle with that kind of uh, mental, mental issue. Uh, internal internal issue and I in no way want to be disrespectful or dishonoring to them so just want to throw that out there as well those are some of my thoughts today I hope you guys have a fabulous day and I look forward again to being with you next week on the Epic Narrative Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.